Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Just one thing, just, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. He says, contending together for the faith of the gospel. If I was a note taker, I probably would underline, highlight, do something to contending together. That is so important. Contending together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28 says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. It's just not enough for us to sit here and believe in what he's done for us. That's cool. That's a start. But he says it's not enough for us to just believe, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him. I know that you believe in somebody asked at your job, hey, do you believe in God? Do you believe in Christ? You will say yes, but there's another element to this. And here's what Paul says, for it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but here's the part where we wish we could wipe this out of our Bibles or erase it out of it. It says, but also to suffer for him, to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just come to you with open hearts today, open minds, excited about what you want to say to your people today, God. We, we don't take the opportunity that we have to be in your presence amidst, amidst God's people, to share in your word, to worship together through song and through reading of scripture and studying of scripture and all of the beautiful things that we experience in Christ as a body of believers. We don't take it for granted. So today, God, um, we, we just want to focus in on what you have to say. We, we want to focus with our eyes wide open, with the eyes of our hearts wide open, God, that, that our spirit would be able to receive all that you have to say. And so Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I call on you today for those of us that are in the room or those of us that are, are, are watching uh, online, F Father, I just pray today um, that, Holy Spirit, you, you would work on us, that you would transform us as we listen, as we study, as we read, as we take notes, as we respond to the message. I pray that you would do something in us, that, that we would actually be moved from where we are and move further along in our journey of sanctification and growth and grace in God. And so today, God, we just pray that Christ would be uh, glorified today. We pray that Christ would be made known today, that we would love him today, um, that we would respond rightly to what he has put in his word. And so, Father, we thank you today. We glorify you. We honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated. My sermon title is simply this, 
represent, represent, represent. I, I want to start off today in a very unorthodox way. I, I want to I start off with a real question, not rhetorical, but I, it's a real question. Uh, th- this is my question to you today. Um, have, it, have you ever been tried before? In, in, in one of your most fleshly moments, have you ever been tried? Somebody ever tried you before and you had to tell somebody where you were from? Have you, have you ever said to yourself, you don't know, I'm from the 305? Have you ever t- had to tell somebody that you're from the 954 before? Have you ever had to tell somebody, I'm from Duval? Have you ever had to tell somebody before where you're from? Have you ever had to tell people, hey, I'm from the 772 player? Have you ever had to tell somebody, I'm from Vero? (laughs) Have you ever had to tell somebody that you was from Gainesville? Somebody tried you, and and you are saying this like, you don't know where I'm from, and because you don't know where I'm from, you don't know what I'll do. Some of us be claiming some places that we we, we ain't never been before, (laughs) that we don't actually live. Like some people, you ask them where they're from, they'll tell you they're from South Florida. And what they're trying to do is claim Miami and Fort Lauderdale, but really you from some small place like Sunrise or somewhere. But you're trying to represent like you from somewhere else. I, I remember, I remember being in college um, when when I was, um, you know, on the struggle bus, and, and me and my, my man's in there was was going to the club, and me and my me and my boy, we would go out, and we had shirts made with our area code on it. Now let me tell you something. If I tell you uh, where I'm really from, you're gonna be like, where? You're not going to really know, but we, we tried to represent our area code, and it was two of us. Don't, don't let two or three of us be together in a group, and then one person try us. Then you'd be like, we don't know where we're from. Like, like we, we, we represent those places, meaning that, that I'm going to stand up for where I'm from. Where, where I'm from means something. It, it, we, we represent where we are from, notice no one ever says they're from the 407. It don't have a nice ring to it. You up there have somebody say, I'm from Orlando. It don't have a nice ring to it, does it? it, it don't, you, no, you can't be tough from Disney World. <laughs> if you got a theme park, you not tough. And so, so you, we, we represent, we, we let people know where we are from. And at this point in the letter, Paul turns his attention away from his condition and away from his plight, and he introduces a theme that will drive the rest of this letter. And it will direct the Philippians on how they will effectively live out what they have been redeemed to live out in the midst of an uncomfortable opposition. Since the beginning of this letter, Paul has been writing to them in a way to demonstrate that everything that has happened to him that is bad, everything that is seemingly bad that has happened to him has served a purpose. Paul has been writing to let them know what has happened to me, although I'm on house arrest, chained to another soldier 24-7 without my freedom. Everything that has happened to me has has happened to me to advance the gospel. And so Paul is not naive enough to think that 
the opposition that he faced when he was in Philippi is not still there for the Christians that he left behind in that church. There is some pressure that is being applied to them from the outside. And if you are a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ and you try to walk righteously with God, there will be some external pressure that you will have to deal with in your walk with God, whether it be family members, friends, or people in your life that will come along and disagree with you because of the walk that you're trying to walk in following Jesus. And so imagine that from a societal, cultural perspective and all of the pressure that goes along with that. But Paul, in this letter, is going to help them deal with the pressure by putting the pressure in its proper perspective. And the perspective that he's going to give them is the only right perspective that we have as believers in dealing with our, 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 our opposition or the problems or all the things that we deal with. The only perspective, the only perspective that we root our stuff in is in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be the foundation of all of our perspectives. The good news that God has sent his son to save sinners and everything else happens from there. And at the core of this good news is the life-giving, life-saving, sacrificial work of Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived this life, who was both God and human at the same time, who suffered for sinners on the cross. It is God by his, and, and God by his grace sent his son to die for us. It is a gospel of grace from beginning to end. The gospel, because we didn't earn it and didn't deserve it, the gospel is nothing but grace. It is all grace all the time. And so with that being said, knowing that we don't earn it, knowing that we don't deserve it, the gospel is so valuable because it is the only thing that offers salvation to humanity that is not based on performance but on the sheer grace of God. That is good news. Because we live in a culture where you got to earn everything, you got to work for everything, you got to climb for everything, you got to level up for everything, you got to boss up for everything, you got to strive and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the gospel is upside down. The gospel is an unexplained paradox. The gospel is not that you can do something, but what has been done for you. It is God's grace and God's grace and nothing but grace. And that is so valuable for us. Because in an age and a time where we have to climb and fake it till we make it and do everything that we can to come up, the gospel is God's free gift to us. It is his free gift to sinners. It is a gift to those who believe because it was and never has been anything that we have had to work for or earn. The gospel makes us new. It makes us a new creation. Then it brings us into a whole new world. Here's the crazy thing. When you get saved, he makes you a new creature. And when he makes you a new creature, he gives you a new address, which means that your area code is not what it used to be. Where you used to say, I'm from the 305, now you just say, I'm from whatever God's area code is. Whatever that is. 
The gospel saves us. It saves us. And then it brings us into the kingdom of God, the realm where, where Jesus reigns in heaven and on earth. And we become citizens of God's kingdom. We become citizens of the kingdom of God. When God saved us, he saved us individually. But now he has made us one. We, we, are, we are one. So, so no matter what your Erico used to be, we are all now share the same area code. We're all now from the same place because our birth origin is the same. We have been born of God's spirit. And so we are now from the same place. We are citizens of heaven. And that means something. That means something. We got to wear this with honor as a source of humility, but also as a source of pride. And in today's text, for Paul to bring up citizenship wasn't happenstance. Paul didn't just say you are citizens of heaven because he wanted to say this, but it meant something because Philippi was a colony of Rome. And here's what you need to understand. Therefore, citizens or the residents of Philippi had the privilege of being Roman citizens. It meant something to them to be from Rome. Rome was the world power. Rome was the most powerful force in the world. And so if you said that you are from Rome, it carried some weight. The same way being a US citizen carries weight if you go to a foreign country. You go to a foreign country, and if somebody asks you where you're from, I imagine that with a sense of pride, you say, I'm from the US. That means something. That means something. So if you're from the U.S., it carries weight. It means something to you. Because if you're from the U.S. and you go over to a developing country, a developing country, just really, what I really mean is a third world country, but I don't want to say third world country because that's politically incorrect. So if you go to a developing country because you are from the U.S., you will not adopt the same culture and the same principles that they, do, that they do. You will not go through the means that they go through to survive. You go over into a foreign country and you go into a house or into a hotel of some sort and you're asking, where's the air condition? I'm not staying anywhere else besides a Holiday Inn Express. I need a three-star hotel or better because you're from somewhere that has all of those amenities. You are not willing to eat some of the dietary things that they eat in foreign countries because you have a certain particular diet that you eat over here in the United States of America. You're not willing to go as far as they go to make sure that they survive. Walking to church, I ain't walking to no church. I'm driving to church. And if I can't drive to church, then I'm not going to church. But if you're from another country, you might have to walk to church. But the reason why you think walking to church is beneath you is because you have a sense of pride in where you're from and the culture in which you were raised in. And so you represent that when you go somewhere else because it means something to you. And this is what's happening in the text. That they, they, they are operating like they are from Rome because Rome is a as a, as a, as a, as the empire in Philippi is a colony of Rome. And so th they carried themselves differently. They did things in a certain manner. If you went to Philippi, you got the sense that you were in little Rome. You expect the citizens to conduct themselves like they are in Rome. They wanted people to know we are Roman citizens. Roman citizenship brought privileges, whether it was taxation or there's a story in Acts 22 where Paul is being beaten and being put in jail and Paul appealed 
close to his Roman citizenship to get out of the situation that he was in because it meant something. It carried weight. And those in the church at Philippi would have prided themselves on being Roman citizens. But here's the thing. Rome wasn't utopia. Rome was not perfect. Rome was wicked. Rome had all kinds of things wrong with it. And Paul is here reminding them that because of their relationship with God through Christ, they are from a different place. I don't care how good you think Rome is, you're from a different place. You are a citizen of a far different kingdom. If you took pride in being a citizen of Rome, how much more should you take pride in being a citizen of heaven that is eternal, that will last forever, where there is no sickness, there will be no disease, where everything is right, where God reigns every day, every hour, where we do things the king's way. And this is the a, a thing that we have to adopt in our mind. Paul said it best in Colossians 1.13. Paul says he has rested us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. The word transfer there means a mighty king literally picks up a population of people and transports them and put them somewhere else. When God saved us, he picked us up wherever we were from and he brought us into his kingdom and every other kingdom besides God's kingdom, even if it's Rome or the United States of America or wherever you're from is a ghetto compared to where God lives and God reigns. And so, this is where we're from. He didn't just deliver us from the domain of darkness and brought us into semi-darkness. No, he brought us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. It is an eternal kingdom that would exist when Rome would no longer be a power that exists. And the ruler of this kingdom would not submit to any other king, president, prime minister, or emperor. He would be the one that would one day judge all dignitaries and all noble people in the world. This is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And Paul says later on in Philippians, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. But here's the thing. While we're waiting for our savior to return, we wait in the not yet and the already. But while we live here, we get to represent the king and the kingdom. And this is what we've been called to do. And so just as it meant something for the residents of Philippi to be Roman citizens and uphold the dignity of the empire, Paul says in verse 27, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, the gospel that has saved you, that has redeemed you, that has washed you, that has justified you, and has transferred you into the kingdom of his son, that has implications. What we don't realize about the gospel is not that the gospel saves us, that it's just salvific, but the gospel has implications. If we believe in what Jesus has done for us, and we believe that he actually got out of the grave, that has so many far-reaching implications. It changes everything about who we are and what we believe. Don't let anybody fool you. It's not enough just to believe. But once we believe, once we trust, trust God and trust what Jesus has done for us, 
it has implications on how we live our life between the not yet and the already. Even here on earth, wherever you go and wherever you find yourself, you don't just represent you, you represent where you're from. You represent where you're from. And I'm afraid some of us are more concerned about representing our last name than we are representing the God who saved us. Some of us are more concerned about representing the city where we came from, where we were born physically, than we are about representing the kingdom of God. And here's what he says. Live your life worthy of the gospel. You know what that really means? Oh, this is so good. You know what that means? It means live in a way that your actions enhances the reputation of the city where you're from. Oh, that's good. He says live worthy of the gospel. That literally means live in a way or let your actions be in a way that what you do enhances the reputation of the city that you are from. And I got a question for you today. In your public and in your private life, do you live in such a way that it would enhance the reputation of the city in which you're from? If somebody knew where you were from and they looked at your life, would they want to visit there? Would they want to go there? Does, does where you from and how you represent it look like a place that anybody else would be uh, attracted to go to or would like to live or visit at some place in the future? But unfortunately, sometimes we forget where we're from and we act like the place that we come from is an actual ghetto. And so, he's saying, represent well. Enhance the reputation of the, city, uh, of the city that you come from. He, he's saying, uh, do, you, do you claim where you're from when you're around your friends? Do, do you claim where you're from? Do you claim, or do, do you, let me ask you, do you represent your set? Do, do you represent the set which, which you come from? Do, do you, let, let, me, let, me make it, let, let me make it a little, little more plain. Do you put on for your city? Do, do you put on, do you put on for your city? Put on. I'm asking, do you put on for your city? And these, 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 is, these are the questions that he's asking. What he's saying is govern your lives according to the gospel rather than according to the culture in which you come from, no matter what it is. And he's calling them to a higher allegiance. Your allegiance is with the kingdom of God, is what he's saying. Recognize. We must recognize that our lives will either bring a credit or dishonor not only to the city where you're from, but to the king you say you represent. Depending on how you grow up, grew up, some of your parents said, don't go down to that school acting no fool. Why? Because they didn't want you misrepresenting them. You've heard this before. Don't go over there acting like you don't have no home training. What they're saying was, there's a way in which you were raised. There's a way in which my people carried themselves in public. And if that is true for those who raised you, how much more will it be to the God that saved you? We represent him. It doesn't matter how you slice it or dice it. Things are on the line when we go out and represent the gospel. And here's what he's saying to them, that, that you got to represent well, not when things are going good, but when he says it to them, it is in the 
thickness of suffering. And the text doesn't tell us, it doesn't let us know what kind of suffering is happening to the people in Philippi. We can imagine it's probably physical threats because of what Paul and Silas went through while they were there. Or it could just be a form of ostracism or pressure to socially conform to their values and to the culture in which they are in. But here's what he's saying. In order to survive and have victory in the cultural and societal onslaught that you may face, if we're going to represent well and live worthy of the gospel, we must understand this one fundamental principle. And here's the main point of the text. We can't do it alone. And he introduces this theme that I mentioned at the outset that will carry the rest of the letter along. And this is his main idea of unity. In order for the citizens of heaven to live worthy of the gospel, they must understand this one simple thing, that we are one. You're not just in it by yourself anymore. Living worthy of the gospel is done in community with other people. I know we say that over and over again, and you think it's cliche, and you think it's a church thing to say, but God didn't save you to walk this Christian life by yourself. You need other people. I'm perplexed when people are just doing their own thing, not hanging with other Christians, not in community with other Christians, just living your life how you want to live, trying to walk it how you walking by yourself. It's hard enough to do it in a group. I don't know how y'all do it by yourself. And the thing is this, we are called to live on mission together. We do not do it alone. Problems come along with living this life and it is too hard for anybody to do it by themselves. Because what we undermine is that there are spiritual forces working against you and I. And they don't take no days off. They work around the clock to tear you away from God, to tear you away from what you say you believe. But I'll tell you this, we're better together. We're better together. I need you, and you need me. You need the person sitting next to you, and they need you too. We were not called to do this by ourselves. We cannot go at it alone. We were never meant to walk the Christian life. And I'm not just saying this because I'm up here on the pulpit. I'm not just saying this because I'm behind a podium. I'm not just saying this. We were never meant to do Christianity outside of the context of the local church. I know. But it's my own personal relationship with God. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. I hate when people say that. Because James clearly tells us that there's a religion that is undefiled. And he identifies Christianity as a religion. So yes, it is relational. But that relationship ain't just you and God. It's you and God and the family of God that he engrafted you into. You need other people. We don't see a precedence for individual sanctification. We see it as individual salvation, but we don't see it as sanctification, meaning the journey of growing in Christ-like conformity. We were not meant to do this without each other. And so this is a call for unity amidst suffering. This is a call for unity in the midst of suffering. Not suffering in general. You do something dumb, you face the consequences. That's not suffering. 
The suffering that he's talking about is I am walking out this Christian life in the way that God called me to walk it out, and I am running up against opposition in the world in which I live in. I am speaking the truth in grace and in love, and people are vehemently disagreeing with me, but they don't just disagree with me. They expect me to capitulate to what they believe in the culture. I'm talking about suffering. When I talk about what God has said in his word and why I believe that and why I believe that is the right worldview that we should all have in the society culture comes against that no matter what the topic is, that is a type of persecution and a type of suffering. If I am at the, a Christian at my job and people know it, even though I may not be obnoxious at my job or obnoxious in my family, people ostracize me because I am resolute in my faith that I don't back down from what I believe I love you, I care about you, I see you as an image bearer, somebody that God made in his image, I just don't agree with you, and I don't agree with your life and why you think this way, and here's why, I still love you, I just have a different way of seeing things, I have a biblical worldview, and if they shut you out because of that, if they call you names because of that, if they, they close doors in your face because of that, that is a type of suffering and persecution that he's talking about, and so this is a, a, a unity in the midst of suffering, because if we are out there being who God called us to be, we can't do it by ourselves. It will be an exercise in futility because none of us individually are strong enough to stand against the demonic forces that we face. And here's what it says in verse 7. Then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith. He says two things. I want to know that you're standing, and I want to know that you are contending. Paul is saying, you should be doing this in my absence. Even when the pastor is not present, the people still should be living on mission. Somebody should have said amen. And so he says, stand firm. It's a military term. He uses that military term on purpose, because in Philippi, it was a place filled with active duty and retired military soldiers. And so he uses language that they will recognize. Stand firm, meaning stand your ground. Stand right where you are in the middle of the opposition. He tells them to stand firm, but notice what he says. Stand firm how? Stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. Stand together. Stand firm in one spirit, in one accord. What he's saying is this. You guys have been united together by God's spirit as a people of God, and you have to stay together and stand firm in in that spirit. Here's what I know. If all of us come from different walks of life and you put us in a room together and we got to get something done, it is not going to happen except if the spirit is the one that is driving our unity. We disagree about too much. We have too many of our own preferences. We have too many of our likes and dislikes. But the only thing, the X factor that will make everything work in every relationship for that matter is the spirit of God must be present. And so we're going to have unity and stand firm. It must be done by the Spirit. And what he's saying is that we can't afford to have dissension in the camp. That we need each other to, to, to beat back the forces of evil. That we need each other so that we don't succumb to the pressure. It matters to God how we as believers live side by side. You see, this is more than just individual convictions. 
we need to have corporate convictions together. That if we're believers, there's some stuff that we need to fundamentally agree on. What he, what he is saying to them is stand firm in one spirit and one accord. He's what, what he's saying, let the Holy Spirit keep you united. Lean on him. Ask him. Invite him in. Invite him into your church. Invite him into your community group. Invite him into your relationships and your friendships. Jesus says that I will give you your spirit, and when you have the spirit, you'll have power. We need God's spirit in the church to do what God has called us to do and we need it to stick together if we don't have the spirit and if we don't lean on this power it'll never work it'll never work and what he's saying is let the spirit bind you in your perspective and in your loyalty to each other you see what 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 unites us is not our age not our race not our political affiliations no, not where we went to school. That's not what unites us. What unites us is God's spirit. So he's saying, stand firm in the spirit of God. We need his spirit. Then he says this, contend together for the faith. If standing firm is a military term, meaning to stand your ground, to fight. Contend means an, is an athletic term, which means to compete. We, we compete side by side. We are, we are competing for the faith. We, we, we don't let anybody undermine or misrepresent what we believe. Jude 3 says this, contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. We are supposed to contend for the faith. We're supposed to fight for the faith. Notice it says something key in the text. Look at the text where it says contend. It says what? Contend together. It says contend together. Not against each other. We don't contend against anyone. We contend for the faith. Let me say that again so that I can sizzle in your spirit. We don't contend against anyone. We contend for the faith. We uphold what we say that we believe. And sometimes I'm perplexed how Christians can beat at each other's throat about secular issues. I'm always confused how Christians can hold tightly to political affiliations. I am always perplexed why some people seem that their identity is in how they vote, not in what saved them. I'm always perplexed by this. I get it if you have a preference or you got a party. I'm, I'm not mad at that. But, but what I am saying is when that loyalty supersedes your loyalty to the kingdom of God, and you got, you got, you got, you, you, they act like they're going to put Jesus in their camp, like Jesus would be in either camp. But, but here's what I want to say. J Jesus would agree with the left and, 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 and their stand for social justice and, and, and equality and, and feeding the poor and poverty and working, and working for those issues. He, he would be in agreement with that. But at the same time, on the left, Jesus would be staunchly opposed on their sexual ethics. Y'all don't like this. This is great. I'm pushed right into this wall of resistance. J Jesus wouldn't be, be okay with their stance on life in the womb. J Jesus wouldn't be in their camp. Jesus would be, be, would be staunchly opposed to their sexual ethic. He would affirm some of the stuff, but he would condemn some of the other stuff. And, and then on the right, they, they think they love Jesus because they can storm the Capitol and hold up Jesus' save signs. 
the, the right will have you believe because they have a right view on marriage and marriage between a man and a woman, and they have a view on sexuality and they have a view on pro-life, which, which things would, God would agree with, but at the same time, God would disagree about your haphazard and cavalier attitude towards the poor, the foreigners, the immigrants, the widows, and all of those people. He would uh, condemn those views. And so what I'm trying to say to you is this. Jesus would have not been brought by either side. Jesus can't be brought. And so I love what Matt Chandler says. He says, we have to see our politics through the lens of Jesus. But what my, my fear is, is that we see Jesus through the lens of our politics. I don't think y'all know how good that is. But we are not political pawns to either party, but we're prophetic to both. We speak God's truth to both. They both can get to business. But we're not political pawns. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said that. But here's what he's called us to do. We graciously and truthfully engage with and speak to both with humility and boldness. We speak to the culture. We engage in the culture. That's contending for the faith. We speak to it. We engage in it. But the way we do it matters to God. We do it graciously, truthfully, and we do it with boldness and humility. And this is what he's saying. Contend for the faith. But not just with your lips, but with your lives. With your lives. And we preach and tell people about the good news about Jesus. We invite the very people we disagree with. We invite them by presenting them with the good news of the opportunity to be a part of a far more glorious citizenship that is in heaven. We tell them about the king that humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. We tell them about a king that suffered and died, but who was raised to life never to die again. And now he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so we tell them and invite them into the kingdom of God. We take our stand so that we can advance the gospel and bring glory to God all at the same time. It's beautiful. That's beautiful. And because we have God and we have each other, there is no reason to fear. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. He says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. You know what? You know what's cool? You have a lot more courage in a fight with somebody that's bigger than you if you got somebody else standing side by side with you. You're a little bit more braggadocious when your homegirl standing next to you. That mouth a little bit more loose when your boy's in the background ready to get it popping. But when you by yourself, you be silent. You be thinking about them consequences and them repercussions or them concussions. But when you got somebody with you, you stand boldly because you know that you're contending together. And that's the same thing we have to do with the, the forces that come against us. You and I are not strong enough individually to stand against the forces of Satan. Which is not. But if one can chase a thousand, oh my God, then two can chase ten thousand. We, we are better together. We, we can contend together. 
But most importantly, here's why I don't have to fear. Because even if my homeboy, my homegirl leave me by myself, I got God by my side. God promises to never leave me nor forsake me. So if I'm standing for him, it's like I got a whole, a whole army with me. They can't do anything to me. They can kill my body, but they can't kill my soul. So there's no reason to fear. And so he's telling them, you don't have to fear anything. Here's why. Because they're attacking you. That means destruction for them. You don't have to get your own vengeance. You don't have to get your own justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So you don't have to fight and defend yourself or defend the word of God or defend what you believe or feel like it's not carrying the same weight as some of the cultural ideals and ideologies. But you can stand behind what God says in his word because God is with you. And God says, if you are enduring with me, if you are contending for the faith, If you are standing firm in the midst of opposition, he says, I am with you, and that is a sign of your salvation. What? Salvation looks like something. Ooh, salvation looks like something. It looks like endurance. It looks like knowing your view is going to be offensive to the culture. And with grace, truth, humility, and boldness, I stand firm in the truth. Oh, my goodness. I was telling our life group this the other day. I cannot stand. I don't, y'all got to pray for me. Pray for me. When I see noteworthy people in the body of Christ go on secular TV or secular radio, and they take a back seat to the cultural opinions of the day, and they do more bashing of the church than they do of celebrating it. And my thing is this, if you sell books to the church and you get your your tithes and offering from the church, you need to be the biggest proponent of the church. But when you get on the breakfast club, you don't talk about the gospel. You don't call sinners to repentance. You don't tell them about the good news. You just promote your little Weasley book. Ooh, pastor, you're going to get in trouble. I don't care what you say. I'm contending for the faith. And this is what God calls us to do. But he doesn't call us to go blow for blow and toe for toe with them. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And here's what he says. And I want to wipe wipe this out of my Bible so bad. I think I'm just getting some scissors and just cut this out. Pray for those who persecute you. This is what he calls us to. Pray for those who persecute you. And what he's saying is this, when you do these things, when you stand firm, but you don't become mean or you don't become antagonistic, perseverance under persecution is a sign of your salvation. Perseverance under persecution is a sign of your salvation because it's a sign that God is actually with you. Here's what you don't realize. We don't go looking for suffering and God is not the author of suffering. But suffering does something for us. I don't want you to ever forget this. You know what suffering does? Suffering provides clarity. You really know who's with God when they can go through some stuff and still hold on to God. You you know who's with God when they're riding with Jesus, even when it's not popular. You know who's riding with Jesus when they get amongst their friends and they hold boldly to their faith. But what you don't know is who's riding with Jesus when it gets a little tight in the room and who gets quiet. But he's saying it's a sign of your salvation when you 
stand there in the heat and you stand firm in what you believe because our suffering gives assurance of our salvation. But that's not only the only thing that it does. It also allows us to identify with Christ's suffering. Look at verses 29 through 30. It says this, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that I saw, that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Here's, here's what I want to let you, let you know. Suffering for Christ is not a curse. It is a gift. Surf, suffering for Christ is a gift because God can take that same suffering and turn around and use it for his good. If you remember Joseph's story, if you've read the Bible before, if you were, if you were a kid and you grew up in Sunday school, you know the story about Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph makes a fundamental statement in Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says this to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about the present result, the salvation of many people. God took an evil situation, some man's suffering, and God used it for good to save some other people. And what I want you to know is the next time you're going through something for being a believer, if it's at your job, amongst your friends, with your family, don't see it as a curse, but say, thank you, Jesus, although this is hard, I know it's working out for your good. And so we identify with Jesus in our suffering. And I'll close with these few thoughts. Paul says, you saw what happened to me. You saw the suffering that I had to endure. If we look at Acts chapter 16, verse 20 through 24, it paints the picture of what Paul had to endure. Here's what it says. Bringing them before the, the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Notice the appeal to citizenship. The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. That, that's a type of suffering. That's a picture of it. After they had severely flogged them and threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully, receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. And Paul says, you saw what happened to me. And Paul was not naive to think that they, didn't, they weren't living in that same atmosphere that he left. And here's what I don't want you to know about our suffering. Romans 5 and 3 says this. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character gives us hope. And that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so our sufferings are opportunities to glorify Christ. But back to my point. We have to do it together. 
He says, stand firm in one spirit, contending together for the faith. You and I are too weak, too feeble, too sinful to walk out this Christian life by ourselves. We just can't do it. And if God has called us to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus, live worthy to, to enhance the reputation of the city that you're from, we can't do it by ourselves. So what is the practical point in this? The practical point is, number one, we pray for the Spirit's help to unite us. Number two, we pray that the Spirit moves us to actually join in and be a part of a community. And thirdly, we ask God to help us to stand strong. Because some of us, God has brought opportunities before us, but because of the pressure, the terminology that I learned at this church that I had never heard before in my life, because of FOMO. You deny Jesus when you should be representing the kingdom. If I'm going to have FOMO about anything, it's going to be having FOMO about not being a citizen of heaven. Because at the end of days, if you follow the culture because of FOMO, I'm about to freestyle on you. You're going to stand before God and you're going to have Romo. Regret on missing out. Bars. Bars. Know this. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, this is 2 Corinthians 1.5. His sufferings flow to us. We follow in his footsteps. He's blazed the trail. But we don't just get his suffering. We get his comfort. He comforts us in our afflictions. He comforts us. God, comfort me in this. God, this is tough. God, I don't think I can withstand the pressure. The heat is turned up in the kitchen. God, I'm right here, and I, I feel you, and it's a millisecond, and I got a decision to make. Am I going to speak the truth in love and grace with humble, uh, with humility and with boldness, or am I going to capitulate because I don't want to offend the person that's standing next to me? God, provide me comfort in this. Be with me. Well, here's what I love, and I'm done. He says, live worthy of the gospel. You know what's at the core of the gospel? Grace. And we all need this grace. The grace that saves us, but the grace that enables us to live the life God has called us to live. The gospel is not just a set of responsibilities. The gospel is news to be believed. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. 
You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.